Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, before we get into our study of God's Word today, I just want to make sure that if you didn't notice on the way in, you will take a look on the way out. But in just the last couple of weeks, we were finally, after a lot of a lot of challenges, able to get our, our trees project underway. And you're going to see some, some trees planted, some other plants there. You're going to see a new area um, where people can gather, a new path that takes you to other parts of the campus. And uh, just want to make sure that you are aware of that. You take a look uh, at it. If you um, have given to that, uh, we sent an email to everybody who has given uh, earlier this week, everyone who's volunteered to help with the ongoing maintenance. And so you, you should have gotten that word earlier this week. But for all of us, uh, we just want to give thanks to God that he's enabled us to get to this place now. We're continuing on in the development of our campus. So let's, uh, let's give God a hand for all he's done. Amen. And uh, I want to invite you as always to get your Bibles open, if you would, to the book of Romans as we're in our study uh, of this letter of Paul's to the Roman believers. And we're going to be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 today. Now, as you're getting there, um, this week I was reminded of something that happened on our, our tour to England and Scotland a couple of weeks ago. We were in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, on our almost last day of the trip, we noticed that there was this kind of ridge uh, behind a palace that we were visiting, one of the royal uh, family's palaces that's there in Edinburgh. And we, we looked up on this ridge as we saw it, and we saw there were people walking up the ridge. And so we, you know, got our phones out, opened the internet, checked things out, and discovered there's a trail, discovered that this was a place that's called Arthur's Seat. It's this massive volcanic rock structure. It overlooks the city and turns out it's a very popular place for hikers, for tourists to, to go because from the summit, you can overlook the entire city. And so the next day, which was our last full day of the tour, Dan and I decided that we were going to hike it. And so we walked all the way from our hotel across the city of Edinburgh. Uh, we got to the trailhead is a couple miles from where we started. And then we started up hiking to the top. Now, it's probably only about um, a mile or so to get to the top, but the trail's uh, pretty steep. You can kind of tell looking at that. And it actually was really, really windy when we got to the top. Uh, that's not, I'm not playing right there, okay? I'm going to say 60 mile an hour winds are blowing on us. And, uh, and so we made it to the top. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're from California. We have, we have real mountains here, right? You know that. And Arthur's seat is only 823 feet above sea level. It's not that tall, you know, really from our perspective. But from that perspective, you can see the entire city of Edinburgh. And it's just an amazing, absolutely beautiful sight. You can see, and you can probably look and notice right now, Edinburgh Castle, that's there. That's at what's known as one end of the Royal Mile. It's a street that runs through the city at the other end of the Royal Mile is what's called the Holy Rood Palace, that royal family residence. And from this summit where we were, you can also turn and look out over the North Sea. Uh, you can keep turning around and you're gonna see as you do uh, Scotland's famous green rolling hills. It's just stunning, beautiful, beautiful sight. And, and from the summit, you see, we could see places that we'd actually visited. And they kind of look different when you get up there and you see them in perspective, right? And we could also see places that we hadn't gotten to visit yet, places we wish we could have visited. You see, because when you're at the summit, you get a whole new perspective. You can see how different parts of things all connect together. And I'm telling you about this, not just to show you my, you know, family photo album pictures. <laughs> I'm telling you this because today we come to the summit of Romans in Romans 8. From this summit, over the next six weeks, we will be able to see some things that we have already seen, but I think you're going to see them more clearly. It's going to help you as we study Romans 8, this summit in the letter, see where Paul is headed in the rest of Romans, the places we're going to still go, the places we're still going to study. And finally, it's actually going to help you to understand the whole Bible better. And, and I say this really without hyperbole, because Romans 8 is without doubt 
one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. Uh, John Piper says the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans. And the greatest chapter in that letter is Romans 8. And many people would actually argue that the greatest verse in Romans 8 is verse 1. See, we're at a summit. So today we're going to be studying the first four verses of this chapter. And what these verses tell us is the simple message, there is no condemnation in Christ. Anybody just want to warm up by saying amen right now? Hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord and God's people all say, well, today, what I want to try to do is to show you uh, both the logic and uh, the beauty, I think, of these first four verses of Romans 8. And if you need kind of a heading to go over all of this, to frame this, it, it ought to be our union with Christ. There are four uh, beautiful truths about these beautiful four verses about our, our union with Christ. And here's the first truth I want to give you. If you're taking notes, you can write this down uh, in the app or on a piece of paper. Number one, we possess, Paul tells us, a new invincible status. Now, I hinted at that a mo this a moment ago, but, but Romans 8.1 could very well sum up the whole Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the sum total reality of what it means to be a Christ follower. Do you see it? See, we have this new invincible status because we are in Christ. It means there is no condemnation over us. Now, Paul begins this chapter with the word therefore. And you've heard me say this before, it's a cliche, but it helps to know it. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask what it's there for, right? And therefore, here just tells us that what Paul is about to say, it flows directly out of what he has been saying. And at a minimum, this uh, refers to what we just saw at the end of Romans 7, verse 24 and 25, where Paul cries out, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We saw this last week. And, and then Paul answers by, by exclaiming, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So at a minimum, Paul is declaring in light of this struggle with the flesh and sin that he was talking about in chapter seven, in light of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I think it's likely that he is saying more, that he's referring back to actually everything that he's already written in Romans 1 through 7. In other words, if you understand this, then this means this one phrase can be interpreted as understood to be the theme of everything that Paul has said about sin and salvation and Jesus and righteousness and freedom in the whole book of Romans, which when you understand Romans and its importance means, in addition, that this is the theme of the whole Bible. Are you tracking with me right here? And while we're talking about it, what I hope is that if this is not already, it will become the theme of your life. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, no condemnation really is the theme of everything in the Christian life. And then Paul, you might have noticed, uses the word now. Why does he say that? Well, he's telling us that 
There is a new era. Something is different now. It's a new era of biblical history. In other words, the old era of history, that's when we were in Adam. Go back to Romans 5. That era was marked by sin and death. He talks about it also in Romans 6. That's what Paul is explaining to us all through these first chapters of Romans, the unrighteousness of mankind, the sin in us that calls for the judgment of a holy God. And so when Paul says... There is therefore now no condemnation. He is saying that something new and something glorious has happened. And understand this. No condemnation just isn't about your past. It's also about now. It's about the present. And it's also, as we're going to see as we keep going, it's about tomorrow. And I, again, hope when you leave today, my prayer is that you will not only understand no condemnation, but you will live in it today and tomorrow and on into the future. So what does this mean? What does this word condemnation mean? The, the Greek word only occurs a few times in the New Testament, actually just in Romans 8 and a couple times in, in Romans 5. And it includes the idea, this is significant, of, of both judicially pronouncing someone's guilt and of carrying out punishment. And in English, we don't really have a word that does both of these things. In, in our system of justice, think about it, we, we have a trial phase that declares if someone is guilty or not. And then you have a, you have a, a phase where you declare the punishment, where you, you, you meet out the, the, the results of the verdict. You have two separate things, but here it's both. They're both together. To be condemned is to be both found guilty and to be sentenced. And it means that before God, Sinful human beings are both guilty and condemned. That because of our rebellion, both our guilt and our judgment are hanging over us. And it just reminds us that contrary to what our culture wants to tell us, our position before God is not neutral. In case anyone is just still kind of confused about this, we are not basically good. I don't care how many of your teachers told you that. I don't care. How many social media influencers repeat something like that over and over again? It's just not true. The Bible tells us otherwise. God's word is clear. And actually, when we think about the law that we studied in Romans 7, the law only made that reality more clear, right? So in light of all of that, the beauty of Romans 8 is this unbelievable statement that there's therefore now no condemnation, which means don't miss it. There is no longer the charge of guilt and there is no penalty connected with our rebellion against God. It's both. And you know, one would, would be enough, right? But the beauty of no condemnation means that you have been declared not only no longer guilty, but also you have been not found uh, any longer to be liable for punishment and again, it isn't just about what you've done in the past. It's about now, the reality you live in today. There is, therefore, everybody say now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when you start getting this, it means that something radical and, and eternally glorious has changed in our relationship with God. It means that our past sins, as well as our future sins are forgiven. And even now in this very moment, now we stand in the full and beautiful splendor of a new relationship with our creator God because of the finished work of his son, Jesus. So no condemnation. It means that those who are in Christ are, again, not only free of guilt, they're also free of the punishment that their guilt deserves. Maybe you can remember it this way. It's not just that our record has been expunged. Our record has been exchanged for another record. And again, 
keep going in this verse, this is all because of our union with Christ, in Christ Jesus. We, we, we spent a couple of weeks uh, earlier talking about this doctrine, but let's remind ourselves by faith in Jesus, we are so closely and profoundly united to him that what is true of Jesus is true of us. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. Where he is, we are. Where we are, he is. The benefits uh, and his accomplishments, uh, everything that he has gained, they're counted as ours. We are with Jesus, in Jesus, united with him. That means when the father sees us, he sees us in Christ. He loves us in Christ. He is for us in Christ. He will never let us go in Christ. And here's what I hope you will see. It's a permanent status. Our status has changed. God does not bring people into this union and then later walk away from them. And that just means among so many things that God is therefore not 50% for us and 50% against us. Like there's maybe some sort of sliding scale, depending how good or bad of a day you're having. Some of us think that, right? You know, some people say, I, I know God loves me, but today I'm not sure he likes me. This tells us that is not true ever. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That means that God in Christ is 100% for you, 100% of the time, forever. No matter what you are doing, no matter who you are, no matter how long you're doing, whatever it is you're doing, God is for his people 100% of the time. He's for 100% of his people all the time. He's not a half-hearted God, a half-loving God, a half-forgiving God. You must believe and accept and hold on to the reality that in Christ, God's disposition towards you is always only love and mercy. Therefore, you have this new invincible status and no one can touch this status. It's invincible, it's inconquerable. That's, that's really what Romans 8 is all about. God is for us. Nothing, nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. That reminds me, it's a good thing to think about Romans 8. Go read it, you know, for yourself when we, we get done here. But Romans 8 starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation, right? That's what this chapter is about. It's a beautiful thing. And, and again, the reason I'm, I, I'm, I'm camping out here is that far too often, far too many of us live as if God loves us on our good days and just tolerates us on our bad days. That's how we, we think. We, we interpret God through our circumstances so many times, don't we? And the truth is, have you noticed this? Our hearts are just like, they're like sieves. Our hearts leak. Our hearts just leak the truth. We, we forget it so often. And that's way, by the way, that's at the heart of why we say you need to come to church every week. You know, pastors don't say this so just we can have a lot of people here. Some of you think that, right? Yeah, you just want me to be here so a lot of people are here to listen to you. No, I care about this because you need it because I need it, because our hearts leak and our hearts need to be filled up with the truth. We need to be reminded of, of the love of God because we too quickly start wondering, does he really love us? And it can feel like that really when we are interpreting God through the lens of our circumstances instead of through the lens of his word. And that's so important for us to, to go, not only to come and gather with God's people every week, but to read God's word, immerse our hearts in God's word every day. We have to keep coming back. So we reorient our hearts. So we renew our hope. So we, we are living according to what God says is true about us. Let me give you a statement I heard. It's not original with me, but I really like it. Um, and, and maybe it'll help you. Christ followers need to learn to see God through their ears. You say, that's kind of weird. <laughs> well, it just means this. We need to learn to see life in terms of what God says about us is true. 
And we need to take that truth and press it into our hearts and press it down into our marriages and press it down into our parenting and press it down into our, our work lives and press it down into all of our hopes and all of our fears. We are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. We have this new relationship with the God who was formerly against us in holy judgment. Now he's for us. Everything is changed. And again, when you understand it, when you get this, it's kind of like you're coming to the summit where suddenly you can see farther than you've ever seen before you see the landscape of your life and it's so different. If you get this, I'm telling you, it changes everything. It, it changes how you see God. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see others and how you see temptation and sin and suffering, how you see everything. No condemnation in Christ Jesus should become the lens for which you see everything in the world. It's the summit it's the summit. Here's the second truth. We possess a new life-giving power. In verse two, Paul says, for, and by the way, stop here for just a minute. When you're reading Romans eight, you should notice how many times Paul says for, because he's, he's making an argument all through this letter. He's building one thing on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. He's drawing conclusions and implications. So Paul says for, we might say here because for the law, and you need to note about this, he's not talking here about God's law, but about a principle or a power or an authority about, he says the principle or the power or the authority of the spirit. So the law of the spirit is like the power of the spirit. And the spirit here is the Holy Spirit, in case you were wondering. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law. And again, law means principle, power, or authority. The law of sin and death. In order, other words, condemnation is no longer a reality for believers, those who are in Christ, because we have been freed from the power of sin and death. We have a new life-giving power. Do you believe that? Some of you aren't so sure. And some of us may affirm that with our lips, but we don't tend to live it out with our lives sometimes, right? We don't really believe it day by day. What does it mean? What is it telling us this new life-giving power that we have. Well, think about it like this. Walk this kind of out with me. Sin is a self-centered power within us that keeps us from being able to fulfill God's law like we ought to. And the essence of Christianity is that God is the supreme treasure in the universe. But due to sin, we love everything else better. That's what sin is. By nature, we are all marked by these self-exalting, God-diminishing desires. By nature, we continually devalue God in how we think and how we feel and how we live, how we act. And in this posture of rebellion, we're enslaved. We, we cannot free ourselves. We're trapped. And a and couple reasons why. First of all, when you're in this predicament that Paul's talked about earlier in Romans, you don't even want to be free from it. You understand that, right? People apart from Christ in their own don't want to be free. They like their sin. They prefer their sin, first of all. Second, because even if we did want to be free, we couldn't get free on our own. We, we could not pay the debt we owe to God. We're trapped. And again, this is the doctrine of human depravity. It's not to say we, we can't be nice and moral and do some good sometimes. People do. But it is to say it does not matter in the end how much good we do for people if we at the same time, which we always do, we treat the living, eternal God of the universe with disdain and disinterest. And the fact that if you mentioned that to your neighbors, they would probably shrug their shoulders. That just proves the point. We don't think it's that big of a deal. Religion is kind of an optional thing. You know, if you wanna make your life better, if that works for you, that's cool, right? That in itself is diminishing God. If there is a God, no, he cannot be an option. He cannot be a, an option. And because 
because we diminish God and denigrate God, we deserve his just punishment and his punishment will be just. It will be terrible. It it will make us tremble if we understand it. And outside of Christ, this is our reality. We are governed by the principle, by the power, the law of sin and death. But Paul says, no, now, now in Jesus, there's another power at work. It is the power of the spirit of life, not death. And the power of the spirit of life sets us free from the power of sin and death. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit enters Jesus' people and introduces this new life-giving principle, this life-giving power. Notice again, what Paul is saying. He calls the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. It's the only place this happens. The Spirit of life gives life. He liberates us from sin and death. And so what we see, Paul is telling us, against this power of indwelling sin, that's Romans 7, against this power, Romans 8, the power of the indwelling spirit comes and sets us free. The spirit comes and convicts us of our sin. The spirit helps us to see sin for what it is so that we turn from it. We see God rightly with the spirit. We see ourselves rightly with the spirit. He leads us to the grace of God in Jesus. He gives us new hearts that are capable of responding and trusting God. It's called being born again. That's what the spirit does. He gives life. And this new heart leads us to new desires for God, new desires for his word, new desires for purity and holiness. He, He gives us this new life of communing with God. And as we live this life, we are progressively walking out of the life of sin and death, leaving that behind. That's what the spirit comes and gives us. He, he comes and gives us life. You see, when you, when you put this together, what it, it leads you to understand is that the power of sin in Jesus' people has been decisively broken. Paul's already talked about that. You may remember from Romans 6, sin is not our master anymore. You don't have to sin. The devil can't make you do it, okay? You might be able to use that excuse on your four-year-old bad idea because he'll use it back at you but it's not true the power of sin has been broken this power of sin that leads to death the the power of the spirit of life has come and, and put that power down and so in Jesus there is no condemnation because we've been set free we have freedom we have freedom in our lives because of what God has done in Christ See, the Spirit has come and he's given us this new power to serve Jesus, the power we never had before, the ability to do what's right and do it in a joyful, joyful way. It's not like you turn a switch on electric power. It's not like maybe the buzz that comes from several cans of Red Bull. By the way, in case you don't know, bad idea. I'm your pastor, I love you, so I tell you these things sometimes. It's not that kind of power, mechanical power. It's the, it's the power of life. And the Spirit's power, if you want to understand it even more clearly, is this. You can write this down. It's simply that the Spirit mediates the presence of Jesus. The Spirit brings Jesus into our lives so that we can follow God in ways we haven't ever followed before. Here's something very important to understand. The evidence that someone is a genuine believer in Jesus is that the power of sin has been broken in their lives by the spirit and they they have unleashed God has unleashed in them a whole new way of living with God and for God not a perfect life but it's a life in relationship with Jesus even as we continue to wrestle against sin now, maybe some of you are even thinking about this right now. It's kind of inevitable. I, I, I find as I talk with people that someone will kind of tell me, you know, I, I, I genuinely think I'm a believer. I feel like I've walked with the Lord for years, but I don't feel free. I, I, I hear this, what you're saying. I, I get this. I think I understand with my mind, but I don't feel free. And if that's you, I have some words of encouragement and challenge for you. First... This could be a question of your own heart. Sometimes if you don't ever feel free, maybe you need to ask yourself, 
Have I truly surrendered my life to Jesus? Am I truly his child or have I kind of played a religious game and I'm actually in reality kind of keeping him at arm's length? I'm trying to still run my own life because the truth is if you're not born again truly, you will not feel free. And so rather than seeking the freedom, you need to seek the one through whom freedom comes. So if that's you, you need to tell him, Jesus, I've, I've been trying to run my own life. I've been playing the religious game. Anybody playing the religious game right now? But you say, Jesus, I don't want to do that anymore. And I am turning from my sin. I'm done with that old way of life. I don't want to live it anymore. I want your new life. I'm surrendering to you. Maybe that's why you don't feel free because you need to get free. Second, though this freedom does come with feelings, it it is not purely something that is felt. You know, feelings are gifts, but feelings can lead us astray, right? That you are free in Jesus, listen, whether you feel it or not. God says what is true about us and a reality is a reality no matter how we might feel about it or no matter what we think our reality is. Side note, nobody in this room and nobody who lives on this planet gets to determine reality. We're not the makers of reality. There's one God and he created all things. He made the universe. It's his universe. If you want an alternative reality, go create your own universe, okay? So we need to live not according to our feelings, but according to what God says. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're just waiting for feelings of freedom to come and God is saying, no, act on the freedom that I've already given you. And that's actually the way you experience freedom. You walk into freedoms. Don't wait for feelings to act. Just walk and trust by faith, walking with Jesus moment by moment. And then third, maybe you're not feeling free because of difficult circumstances. Sometimes hard times in our lives uh, create, and I'm gonna use this picture that we should get kind of here in the Bay Area. They create kind of a fog in our soul and we can't see God's truths. And in those moments when the fog is rolling in and we can't see very far, that's when we need to pull back and that's when we need to say, maybe this is one of those seasons and, uh, and I know what I need to do here. I need to pay careful attention to my soul. I need to read God's word more maybe than I have been reading it to remind myself of his truth. I need to dig deeper into community with other people who can encourage me and give me more support than I usually have because I'm still free even though I can't see it in this fog. And then fourth, maybe there's just unrepented sin in your life. There's some things you haven't dealt with and maybe you've been in essence kind of walking back into slavery and there's nothing that quenches the spirit more than secret unrepentant sin in your life. And you know, we think sometimes (laughs) that we can kind of dabble in sin on the side. You know, all sin is illogical. And it's the illogic of sin that seeks to convince us that we can walk with God on the one hand while we're walking into sin on the other hand. It doesn't work, right? God loves you too much to let that happen. And so you will struggle when that's true in your life. He will send his conviction in your life to bring you back to him. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. See, we have this new life-giving power. Therefore, we should walk in that power. Number three, we possess a new omnipotent ally. Verse three, it's actually the longest of these four verses and it explains really what led to that unbelievable statement of verse one. How is it possible that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Paul says in verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Notice the powerlessness of the law because it was weakened by the flesh. Again, we said last week, the flesh is the problem, not God's law. So how did God solve the problem of the weakened law that was weakened by the flesh? Well, in verse three, continuing, Paul says he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And through sending his son, Paul says, he condemned sin in the flesh. So The focus shifts here to the work of God. In other words, what we could not do, God did for us. Amen? 
We have a new omnipotent ally. And this is what verse three is showing us. It is showing us the stunning display of God's kindness that God moves to rescue sinful people who couldn't rescue themselves, that God is the one who has saved sinners, the one who has himself made the sacrifice, the one who has achieved reconciliation. And as you marvel again at the beauty of what it means for there to be no condemnation in your life, keep in mind that the ultimate beauty of redemption and is not the people, us who are saved. The ultimate beauty of redemption is the God who saved saved all of us undeserving people. See, that's the beauty you see from the summit. The beauty of heaven. Heaven is going to be amazing, right? I hope everyone here is going to be there. You don't want to miss it, okay? I'm just telling you. The beauty of heaven is, is not going to just be the millions and millions, the billions of people who God has redeemed. It's going to be the singular reality that that God, that God, he has rescued me. And the way he rescued me is not just giving a sacrifice. Instead, he, he made his own son the sacrifice. That's what Paul is talking about here. And notice what God does in verse three, according to Paul's words. First, he, he sends his own son as the means of redemption. In other words, at great personal cost. Second, he says he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? Paul said the law was weakened by the flesh. And again, we've said it, the flesh is the problem. Sinful flesh is the epicenter of our rebellion. The flesh is what makes mankind hostile to God. And by the way, in our flesh, we're God's enemies. That's Romans 8 verse 9. We're going to see that next week. And yet the son of God sent by the father comes into the world and he takes on the garments of this broken, hostile environment. And that's all wrapped up in what it means for the flesh to be the flesh. Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what's more, Paul says, he came, he was sent for sin. That means that he did not just come to bring a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. Jesus became the offering. And so try to wrap your mind around this. God rescues sinful people. He does this by sending his own son. His own son comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, the very epicenter of what it means to be God's enemies, to be rebels against God. He comes and he offers himself. And then Paul says he condemned sin in the flesh. And it's not a coincidence that he uses this word condemned again. He uses it so closely to verse one, that we will make the connection that God declares no condemnation over those who are in Christ because he has poured out our condemnation for sin on his son. We're not condemned because Jesus was condemned. And again, this is the only place in the Bible where Paul uses language like this. And what it means is that the very location of the rebellion in that place, the flesh, that is very location of the rebellion. That is the place, the location of restoration, where restoration takes place. And God just loves to do things like that. We sinned in the flesh. We rebelled in the flesh. He sends his son in the flesh in order to rescue us. Theologian, John Murray in his commentary on Romans summarizes this truth like this. He says, Jesus not only blotted out sin's guilt and brought us nigh to God, he also vanquished sin as a power and set us free from its enslaving dominion. And this could not have been done except in the flesh. The battle was joined and triumph secured in that same flesh, which, is, which in us is the seat and agent of sin. See, God dealt with our sin by taking on our sin himself. He paid for our sin. He atoned for our sin because he condemned sin in Christ. You were not condemned in Christ, verse one, because sin was condemned in Christ, verse three. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to rejoice in and remember this truth that it was through God's son that sin and death was defeated. 
we have an omnipotent ally in this fight and it's just all so beautiful. We have this new invincible status, this new identity. We have this new life-giving power and in this power, this fight that we are uh, uh, facing, we have an omnipotent ally, one who will go to any link to set us free. I want to ask you a question. Have you heard any better news this week? I don't think so. Okay. This is such good news. And I hope right now that some of you are kind of quiet is because you're stunned and overwhelmed by the beauty of what God is saying, what he's telling us. But it all leads to the fourth verse and the working out of all this because in verse four, we see this, that we can live transformed lives. See, all of this kind of heavy, profound, deep doctrinal truth I've been trying to explain to you the best that I can is all leading us right here to verse four where we're as a result of this to leave transform, leave, live transformed lives. Paul says in verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that phrase in order that tells us that this is the effect. So again, remember Paul's making an argument he makes the statement in verse one. He, he explains that statement in two ways in verses two and three. And now he's showing us what the effect of this beautiful reality is in us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything that God demanded, everything the law demands, everything that righteousness demands, it is all completely, fully satisfied by Jesus, his person and his work. See, Paul is just trying to help us see what it means to be people who are not facing condemnation anymore. I want to go back to my analogy of being there at the summit in Edinburgh. When, when I'm at the summit and when I'm seeing the whole city of Edinburgh, I can see the places that I've already been, but I can also see the places I haven't been yet. And the beauty of the summit is that you can celebrate what you've already seen, but, but it also can create an appetite for more, right? It's like I see places, I, I would love to go there. I, I would love to go here. I wanna see that too. The beauty of Romans 8 is it shows us the summit where we can still go, which is why Paul is saying this has been fulfilled in us. And he uses this phrase, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul Again, Romans is so doctrinally rich, but Paul has in mind not just theological realities, but practical ways that we can live these realities out. So to say that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us is to say that Jesus, by virtue of his life, by virtue of his death, he perfectly satisfied all the demands of the law. And then to say that the people who now are united with him, they have this new union, this identity in Jesus, they will also live as Jesus lived, walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul's just showing us how practical all this beautiful doctrinal truth is. So why is this important for you to know? Well, you need to see this because you cannot just walk away from Romans 8 with only gratitude for no condemnation if that's all you leave with today, that's, that's good. But God wants more for you. You need to have that at a minimum. You need to leave today thinking, oh God, thank you. There's no condemnation you know, for me in Jesus. So you start with gratitude, but there's so much more. You must also be filled with motivation to express how that works out in your life, that that gratitude should then shift and, and be poured out into your day-to-day -day life as you walk every moment of every single day. In other words, that at the summit, you're, you're not only wowed by what you see, you're wooed to go on even farther to know more of this beautiful God who loves you so much that he would do what he's done for you. Does this make sense? See, God wants us to live this all out. You say, well, what does this mean? Well, what are the implications? So really quickly, um, I wanna help you understand um, some of the implications of this. Uh, Romans 8 
is meant to do something in your daily life. And so as you leave it, something is different about you. And so I, I want to real quickly give you um, some ways we live these realities out. And once again, as always, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with you people. You don't listen fast enough. Um, <laughs> So I have to do this real quick, but this would be good stuff to talk about in your life groups, okay? So what does this say about worship, okay? I'm gonna give you six words real quickly. What should be your goal every Sunday as we gather together in corporate worship? Why do you come? Why do you sing? Why do you listen to a sermon? Do you know why we're here? Why, why do we do this? And the answer is because every week we are reconnecting our broken lives in this broken world filled with all the brokenness around us to truths that we must remember. And that truth is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should motivate, that should empower your worship every Sunday. We don't need to let the brokenness of the world take us down and drag us down. We need to be uh, inspired again in our worship, this reality that we have. Second, very similarly, prayer. How does Romans 8 relate to prayer? Well, here's how prayer is the means that I first express my gratitude to God for what he's done to me. And it's also my connection to the grace I so desperately need. You realize, don't you, that it is only not condemned people who are given permission to approach the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. It is only people who deserve judgment and who have been given grace who can approach God and receive what we need. And so I'm called to pray and I'm called to pray in the Holy Spirit as Jude says, to pray in the Holy Spirit and keep myself in the love of God. So we pray, we pray out of gratitude for what God has done. Third, evangelism. How does Romans 8 relate to evangelism? Well, do you have a hunger to see some people in your life meet Jesus? How does that happen? Well, a huge part of it will be here when you in your own life are, are treasuring and, and rejoicing in the beauty of what it means for God to, de to declare you condemnation free. You know, when we came off of Arthur's seat and walked back to our hotel and then we met up with people in our tour, tour, we told as many people as we could what we'd done. We wanted them to know that we climbed that hill up there. We saw some things that, you know, they hadn't seen maybe. We told them about the beauty of what we have seen, had, had seen. And when we truly get the beauty of all that God has done for us, as we see in Romans 8, we will not be able to stop talking about it. In other words, if you get Romans 8 on your heart, you will have gospel witness on your tongue. You can't help it. See, some of us try to fight the fear of sharing our faith. Like, who's afraid of sharing your faith, right? Just like four or five honest people in the room. <laughs> We try to fight it with guilt, but it doesn't work. Have you noticed that? You fight the fear of sharing your faith with beauty, with the stunning reality of what God has done for you in Christ. Because here's the truth. No one has trouble telling other people about good news in their life, right? I mean, no one. We, we can't help but share it. A few weeks ago, I think I told at least 20 people, the Dodgers lost, they're out of the playoffs. <laughs> I lots of people. Good news. And so the more we see the good news of Jesus, the more we will share it. Number four, identity. We keep coming back to this. We have a new identity. We need to make our identity in Christ. And I, I just wanna say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't lived yet, but you can. There's no life like this new life that God has given us in Christ. We're going to keep talking about that. So I'm going to move past some of the things I have in my, my notes. I, I said six things. I actually meant five. Okay. Um, so be grateful. Uh, number five, <laughs> number five, guilt. Maybe you look back on this past week and I don't want to leave without talking about this. Maybe you look back on this last week, maybe it's the last couple months or maybe the last year and you have some pretty big regrets. Maybe you look on the trajectory of your past life and there's just these misgivings and, 
and you look at some things and it feels like they can't be fixed. It feels like they can't be made right. You feel so guilty. Maybe you're in the midst of a trial and you're actually wondering, am I going through this because of something I've done? Is God angry with me? And you know what Romans 8 does with guilt? It reminds us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It reminds us that all of our sins and all of our failures and all our inadequacies are, are paid for by Christ. It reminds us that God is for us and not against us, that even in our brokenness, even in our failures, even in our still rebellion sometimes, that God still loves us and his arms are always wide open for broken people. And then it means that out of the reservoir of God's infinite kindness to us, we can pour out our own love, our imperfect love, our imperfect kindness on the people in our lives who, who, who need it. This truth of no condemnation is so very beautiful, so very beautiful. It changes our lives. It changes everything. Has your life been changed? How does God wanna change you today from what you've heard today? I hope you will take his truth and I hope you will prayerfully press it down into your life starting right now as we pray. And I hope that you will begin to live it out. This is God's word for us, Southwinds. All people in this room say, amen. amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. God, you have invited us to come to the summit of Romans 8 to see the beauty of what you have done for us in your son, to see the grace that you have poured out to see the love and the sacrifice, to see the power of the spirit, the beauty of all that all of this means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, set us free with these truths. We thank you once again for the beauty that you have revealed to us. And we ask that you buy your Holy Spirit would press these truths, the invincible status, the new life-giving power, that you are an omnipotent ally, that you, you, Lord, want to transform our lives, all of these things so that we are different people, we live different lives, and Lord, all to serve the goal that you would be glorified, that our joy in you might be overflowing, that this city, the cities we live in might see your glory through the gospel. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say.